Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. I, uh, why, don't we, why don't we stay standing just for one second? I want to pray for you this morning. In fact, I want to ask, I don't know if the team... Are, well, that's unfortunate. Um, <laughs> sorry, well, while they uh, work out, I trashed the place. It's just, sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> while we work that out, um, I want to put a picture of my mom up on the screen. I think we've got her somewhere. That's my beautiful mom. And it's my, uh, this is my first Mother's Day without her. So she went to be with Jesus last November. And so this, this Mother's Day is, I guess you could say, bittersweet. And, uh, and perhaps it is for some of you here too. I know that days like today are a cause, and rightly so, for honor and for celebration and for joy. And yet for many of us, there can be mixed emotions on days like today. And so I just want to pray uh, before we jump into the message today just for uh, all of us and for the amazing women, spiritual mothers, natural mothers. I'm so grateful for the generations and for the incredible women that call Liberty Church home. So Father, I just pray for... All of us today, we just celebrate motherhood. We celebrate family. God, today we, just, we celebrate the beauty of generations and those who have an impact in our lives. And so, Lord, as, as we just uh, celebrate Mother's Day today, as we honor all the women of every generation in our house, I just pray that they'd feel greatly encouraged. They'd, see, they'd feel seen and they feel known and valued today in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. All right, you can go ahead and take your seats this morning. Got a new stand. Oh, that one's it's not, not much better than the last one. All right, what are we going to... Is there anything else I can put this on? Okay, sorry everybody, don't mind us. Is that going to work? You rock. Let's give it up for Emily Kirkendall. On the production team, she's multitasking. That's what, I mean, that's what Mother's Day is all about, though, folks, right? She's pastor, she's production team, she's music stand fixer. That's what moms do, right? Ninja. <laughs> How are you doing today? Are you doing well, Bayridge? I love what God's doing in this community. It's an amazing, amazing story, and the best is yet to come. Um, I want to jump into the message today, and uh, I wonder when I say the name... Joseph, in the context of the Bible, who you would think of. I wonder who you would think of. If I say Joseph, because there's some famous Josephs in the Bible. I mean, one of them you might be familiar with in the Old Testament was one of, one of 12 sons and, I mean, famously more loved perhaps uh, by his father than the others and got a coat of many colors that, you know, earned him the hatred of his brothers who threw him down a well, sold him into slavery. I mean, it was a whole thing. And he ends up through all of that trial and tribulation, becoming effectively the second in command uh, to Pharaoh of Egypt, the superpower of the day. It's a pretty amazing story, but that's not the Joseph that I want to speak about today. There's also a New Testament Joseph, you know, uh, engaged to be married to a woman by the name of Mary, ringing any bells, and uh, who becomes pregnant with God, which is quite a story. And he ends up becoming, I don't know if this is the right technical term, but I guess he's like stepfather to God uh, in the Bible. And so, you know, he has this incredible story of trusting God and what it must have been to carry and to steward that responsibility, uh, despite maybe culturally what other people would have made of his uh, bride-to-be saying, God got me pregnant. So that was, I mean, that's a pretty awesome story. But that's not the Joseph I want to speak about. The Joseph I want to focus on today, actually, you wouldn't probably even know him as Joseph because the, the apostles changed his name. 
In Acts chapter 4, verse 36, it says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Joseph. But the apostles called him Barnabas. And you know what I love about that name Barnabas? They gave him a name which means son of encouragement. So today I want to speak to you about what it is to really be a Barnabas. I want to encourage us to live in the way of being a Barnabas to those in the world around us. A son or a daughter of encouragement. How many know that encouragement is a powerful thing? How many know that we all need encouragement in different seasons of our life? I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that in different seasons, maybe in my formative years, that someone was there to encourage me. Maybe in those transition times when encouragement is all the more important. Maybe in those valley seasons when you're really going through it, think maybe things are against you or maybe you feel like you blew it and somebody steps in in moments like those and encourages or literally puts courage into you. There's something powerful about it. Joseph earned himself a different name by the way that he lived. I wonder if that could be our story. I wonder if people would rename you, whatever you were born to be called, whatever your parents named you. I wonder if people in your world around you would say, no, 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 you're a Barnabas. In other words, you are a son, you are a daughter of encouragement, if that is our reputation. Seems like his reputation stuck because that's the last time the Bible calls him Joseph. (laughs) From here on out, it's always just Barnabas. And boy, does he live up to that reputation. I mean, he earned this reputation, it seems, pretty early in his ministry, so to speak. But he, he lives into that name for decades more. Chapters of the book of Acts, he lives into this name. And at a crazy time for the early church. Think about what was happening in this period of time when he's being an encourager. I mean, these were times when encouragement was really needed. I mean, these were difficult times. Yes, the gospel's spreading, but largely because of persecution. It's what they call involuntary missions, right? Which is, I don't want to be sawn into, boiled in oil, or fed to the lions. I think evangelizing over there looks like a great idea. There was a lot of that in the early church, involuntary missions. And Barnabas, in that environment, in that climate, where it was frankly dangerous to even be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, he becomes an encourager to people around him. He's a man whose generosity and his passion, his words and his presence are like radically encouraging to people. I think it's a powerful calling. I think it's a noble calling for you and I to to, uh, to, uh, aspire or believe to be people of encouragement ourselves because encouragement is a powerful force. Isn't that true? Encouragement is a powerful force. I'm I'm forever grateful for people that spoke words of courage into me in different seasons of my life. One of them, you know, I could name several, but one of them, particularly when I was 16 and I came to Christ, at the age of 16 and 17, I was the first real follower of Jesus in my immediate family. And, uh, you know, there was somebody who believed in me. In those days, her name was Christine Karyophilus, a good Greek name. Her friends called her Alphabet because there's so many letters in her last name. And, uh, <laughs> but Christine believed in me. And she spoke words of life. Actually, today, Christine's a very well-known communicator around the world. Christine came these days since she got married. Started an anti-human trafficking organization called A21, a network of women's events and teaching around the world called Propel Women and famous preacher. And, uh, but back in those days... You know, she was just the person that believed in me, that saw potential in me. I remember her saying to me one time, because I was really practicing what it meant to encourage others 
in the youth ministry. And she said to me, I think it's sage wisdom. She said to me one day, she said, sheep go where they're fed. She was watching the way that I was kind of living and speaking words of life. And in a sense, you know, what you realize is that when you live like that, we're all looking for, for nourishment, if you want to put it that way. You know, she said, sheep go where they're fed. And then she followed up by saying, you know, if you live life as an encourager, you'll never have a shortage of people to help. I've discovered that to be true as a leader. Of course, there's a place sometimes for challenging. Of course, there's a place sometimes for correcting. But is that the theme of my life or is the balance, is the default of the way that I lead others and live that I want to be an encourager in people's life? You know, Christine, she's a strong lady. If you've ever had any connection with her or listened to her preaching, I mean, make no mistake, she was a tough boss. She was, I needed a tough boss, though. I was a piece of work. But I, she was a tough boss. And she did not pull her punches when it came to challenging me. But like nobody else, she believed in me when, frankly, I was a long shot. Ever felt like a long shot? Maybe I still feel like a long shot sometimes. Does anybody else feel that way? And you're just grateful looking back. Somebody sees me. Somebody saw me. Somebody believed in me. And I can say for the record, without a shadow of a doubt, I wouldn't be who I am today. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if it weren't for Christine and a couple other people like her who believed in me when that took a whole lot of faith and vision. <laughs> I think we're people who are supposed to encourage others. I was, I was thinking about the word encourage because sometimes when we use these words, they lose their meaning. What do we mean when we say to encourage? Let's flush that out a little bit. I, I looked at the Merriam-Webster dictionary for the definition of, of what it means to encourage. And there's several ways of thinking about what it means to encourage. One of them is to inspire. I love that. Do we inspire others? It says to inspire with courage, spirit, or hope. In other words, to hearten people. The world is very quick to dishearten. Have you noticed that? There's a lot of discouragement. Just read your news feed or go on social media and you can feel discouraged in about 30 seconds flat, right? But I believe as the people of God, we're called to inspire with courage, spirit, and hope. Well, what about this one? I like to an attempt to persuade or to urge. I think in God... We can urge people, we can encourage people, we can persuade people toward the cause of Christ. It says here also is to spur on. When we encourage people, we spur them on. You know, like the people on the side of the road on a marathon as they're running and they're cheering and you can do it. There's something about that spirit of the encourager that helps people finish their race in life. To spur on. Or what about to give help or patronage to? I love that. Are we a patron to others? In other words, do we, do we lend support? Do we get behind them? Do we rally around them? Do we foster the potential of God in their lives? Let's face it, there's already more than enough discouragement in the world, isn't there? I think we as the people of God have got, got to really just determine to be the sort of place where in the house of God, it, it should be the, the last place that's defined by criticism, defined by cynicism, defined by negativity. The house of God ought to be a place where people are encouraged. I think we see that ministry in the ministry of Christ. I was thinking as I wrote this message about synonyms, other ways of understanding encouragement. And one of the thoughts that came to me was the idea of being an advocate. And the minute that word came into my head, I recollected in John, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2 verse 1 and 2 says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
Are you grateful for Jesus? That, you know, in other words, when he was an advocate, I mean, it went so much beyond just saying words of encouragement. No, Jesus, his, 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 his encouragement, his, his example to us was literal sacrifice. That's what atonement means. It literally, he paid with his own blood, with his own body for our sins. Can you get a more practical way of advocating? He literally stood in the gap that we could be sons and daughters of the Most High. And it says that he's now before the Father. What's that mean? Well, he's advocating in the sense that he's praying for you. You've got a great prayer team. Next time you feel like you're going through it, just remember Jesus himself is before the throne. Jesus himself is before the Father praying and interceding on your behalf. And as Jesus prepared to leave earth and return to the Father, as, as his sort of earthly ministry, if you like, was coming to a close, not only is Jesus our advocate, but it says in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The spirit of truth this is the Holy Spirit. Now, as Jesus prepares them to receive the Holy Spirit, he says, not only is it my job to be an advocate, I've done that here in bodily form with my sacrifice and paid for your sins with my blood. Now I'm going to the Father to pray for you and I'm leaving another advocate for you, the Holy Spirit. And he says, the, the Spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. So what's my point? My point is, aren't we as followers of Jesus called to outwork the mission of God in the earth? But doesn't it seem plain to you as it does to me that the ministry of Jesus was to be an advocate? The Holy Spirit has sent for us to be an advocate. And now, in many ways, that ministry, what Jesus also calls the ministry of reconciliation, is entrusted to you and I to be a force for God, for good in the earth, to advocate, to encourage, and to strengthen. As I was reading some of the commentaries about Barnabas, one of the things that struck me was that there's an alternate way of, uh, of translating this name Barnabas, which is the son of prophecy. Most translations render it son of encouragement, and I like that, and that's what I was writing this message about, and I nearly just ignored the secondary translation, which is also accurate, and it's a shade of meaning, if you like, this idea of being a son of prophecy, but then I got to thinking, why would it be that you can translate that same thing two different ways, encouragement and prophecy? To me, that speaks to what prophecy is supposed to be all about. If you think about what encouragement does, it's like prophesying potential into being in people's lives. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, it says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. So you see prophecy and encouragement in the same verse, and that it's the purpose of prophecy. Now, mind, of course, there are times when it can be appropriate for a, a prophetic word to be a word of challenge or a word of correction, but the balance of it on the, on the whole in the New Testament is not, you know, yay, verily, doom and gloom. It's not calling out people's secret sin. It's not prophets of doom. By and large, the gift of the prophetic is given for encouragement, to strengthen, to comfort, to bring hope and life and courage into people. Certainly that's what Barnabas did, right? He prophesied, in some senses, potential into others. And I want to show you one of the most famous examples, which speaks, I think, to his humility and to his gift, is Barnabas was the one who believed in the man who would become the Apostle Paul. Barnabas, you know, already had a significant ministry. The Bible records, you know, he was having great impact in his own right. 
You know, Saul, who became Paul, was famous for all the wrong reasons. As Barnabas' ministry was rising, Saul was the one who was against the early church, passionately against it. If you're familiar with the scripture, Saul's first mention in the Bible is that he was a young man holding the coats and approving as they martyred the first follower of Jesus, Stephen, who'd been appointed to help with the widows. And there's Saul giving his approval. In fact, it seems he gave more than approval because he goes on to be a terror to the early church, throwing people in jail. I mean, really his persecution led to people being killed for the cause of Christ. He gets all riled up and then he goes to the kind of religious leaders to get letters of permission from them to go now to another city. I don't know if he finished, felt like he'd finished the work in Jerusalem. Now he's off to Damascus. I hear there's followers of the way there. And he's got letters, permission to drag them back and put them in prison in Jerusalem. Now it's on his way to Damascus that he encounters Jesus. I love the irony of that, right? It's on his way there. Murderous threats he's breathing out, the Bible says, towards the Christians. And then flash of light he hears the voice of God Saul Saul why are you persecuting me he's confused because he's in his zeal his misguided zeal he thinks he's for the cause of God and in fact he's against God and he has this realization that he's been against the very God he thought he was serving he's struck blind and a man by the name of Ananias who's in Damascus one of those at risk from Saul's mission should it be successful Gets a, gets a word from God. He, God visits him and says, I want you to go. There's a man called Saul. And, you know, Ananias understandably wrestles with this. He's like, wait, is this the Saul that we all heard is on the way here? Is this the Saul that's having people killed? Do you want me to go to that guy and bring him to my house? Well, he does. And as it happens, he's converted. He gives his life to following Jesus. The scales fall off his eyes. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 9. In verse 19, Acts 9, verse 19, says Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. That's got to be an experience. Like, put yourself in the story for a minute. We read these things like just historical facts, which they are, but put yourself in the story for a minute. The guy whose reputation is killing Christians, persecuting the church, now he's at your house, and now he's just hanging out, no big deal, spent several days with the disciples, and at once he began to preach in in the synagogues, that Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, this is like a hairpin turn at 200 miles an hour for everybody else. They're like, wait, what? Who's on the preaching roster this weekend? Didn't he kill our friend last week? This is a big deal, right? I don't know how everybody made this adjustment. It's like, whoa, okay. Might not bring my friend this Sunday because I'm not sure about this guy yet, right? <laughs> and all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? And yet, listen, yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. <laughs> it's a great kickoff to your ministry, right? It's like one minute, like they love you. Next minute, it's like, okay, we're done. Ah, uh, and says Saul learned of their plan. And day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night, lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him. I wonder why. <laughs> they were all afraid of him, not believing he was really a disciple. I mean, I guess that makes sense, right? Would have seemed like a clever ruse to pretend to have converted in order to kind of lure everybody out into the open and then sort of strike the blow. Well, 
It says this. I love these words. Here's, here's his bind that he's in. But verse 27, man, two words that define this whole message. But Barnabas. Oh, something about those words. You know, life, the narrative is all heading one way. But Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He, he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he'd preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul, Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. Okay, this is becoming a theme already. We haven't even got a whole chapter of Saul's ministry and there's been two assassination attempts in or, already, right? And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. That's where he grew up. They sent him home. <laughs> and then I like this, this. This next statement always makes me kind of laugh. Verse 31. And then, so they sent him home. And then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. <laughs> I think that's funny. I think, you know, Saul in all of his zeal, Saul who would become Paul, was kind of a disruptor and nearly got himself killed a few times. But they have a little peace when he goes home for just to regroup and mature a little. And living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. I love that. See, I think there's power in having a Barnabas in your life. I wonder who has been that for you. I wonder who you need to be for somebody else in the story or the direction of their life where you could be the, but put your name in, but such and such. In that moment, believed, stood by them, stood in the gap. It's so powerful. He believed in Saul when others didn't, and maybe for good reason. I wonder if you can see the potential of God in another person. I wonder if you can see the work of God in another person and call out the greatness in them. I wonder who God's calling you to be a Barnabas to today, to see someone and believe in someone as God does, not according to their past, but according to their God-given potential. So easy, isn't it, to define people by their worst moments or their darkest seasons? So easy to define people by the past, but I wonder if we can have the courage to be a Barnabas who sees the potential of God in others. I wonder, here's, let's go a little deeper in this, because it's easy in the theoretical, but I wonder, let's make it practical. I wonder if you're willing, I wonder if I'm willing to risk my reputation on someone else. That's what Barnabas did. That's what Barnabas did. He went before the apostles. He had a good reputation. He had a significant ministry of his own. He's not a no-name, but he puts his name on the line. He vouches for him, tells the story, speaks of his conversion, speaks of his passion and boldness in preaching in the name of Jesus. You know, as for me, as for me in our house, so to speak, at Liberty Church, I would rather, if we're going to err, if we're going to err, let's err on the side of believing in people, right? So easy to err on the side of mistrust or misguided caution, you know, always testing, always waiting, always suspicious or cynical. That's not, I don't think, the way of Christ. I want us, if we're going to err, let's err on the side of believing in people. And I wonder if we're willing to handle the ups and downs that that's going to bring. Great preaching, nearly killed him. More preaching, more death threats. I mean, it's like, it's kind of a roller coaster for Barnabas. He's like, who have I handcuffed myself to, right? I mean, he's put his reputation on the line with this guy who's like new wine, volatile, exciting, but like, whoa, where is this going to kind of all pan out? But you know, in some ways, what's interesting, and let's get to the heart of this. If we're really going to be an encourager, we've got to be deeply secure. Because, you know, in the, in the light of history, 
as we look back, you could make a case that at least from an earthly perspective, Saul, who became Paul, really eclipsed Barnabas. That what he went on to do, I mean, he had more notoriety, more fame. Paul goes on to be the apostle to the, to the Gentile, to the non-Jewish world. He writes much of the New Testament, has a tremendous impact. And yet it seems to me that Barnabas is not at all threatened by any of that. In fact, he does the journey with Paul, quite literally does the journey with Paul along the way. You know what? When it comes to encouragement, I think it's important for us to remember that both words and works matter. Both words and works. When I say, hey, why don't you go out there and encourage somebody today? What we think by default is say something. And that's good. That's a part of encouragement. But you know, that's not how Barnabas, it seems, got his reputation. You know, where do we begin? We begin in Acts 4 with him not bringing words of encouragement. The Bible actually says that, that, a, that a, a, a Jew from Cyprus by the name of Joseph had sold land and brought the proceeds and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they called him the son of encouragement. Seems to me that it was works as much as it was ever words in his life. He did something. Sometimes it's our presence. Sometimes it's something practical we can do to stand in the gap to support or to resource somebody that can bring encouragement into people's lives. I like this quote from Helen Calder who did a commentary on this passage. She said, you cannot have an encouraging life without having a generous heart. To encourage is to give. To release, not withhold. And generosity is foundational to encouragement. They really are related, aren't they? Being generous. In some ways, you could say that encouragement is about being generous with your words. And I think a Barnabas spirit makes us just generous in every area of life, whether it's our time or our talent or our treasure. We just live generously as an encouragement to others. But sometimes the challenge is, especially in our sort of 21st century Western Christianity, we oftentimes very cultured, very trained to think that the highest calling in life is to want to really be a hero. But I wonder if that is the highest calling, actually, for a follower of Jesus. I wonder if our dream is to be heroes or to be hero makers. I'm not negating for a minute that there's power in your example. When you, you know, God works miraculously through you and you do great things and, you know, the power of your example and you're modeling what you're hoping to see in others, by all means, you know, live a heroic life. I'm not negating that. But you know, a book came out just earlier this year by Pastor Dave Ferguson from Christian Community Church in Chicago. He wrote a book called Hero Maker. Some ways it challenges the paradigm of how we think oftentimes in Christianity that the highest calling is not to be a hero, but it's actually a hero maker, to be one who makes heroes of others. You know, being a Barnabas is about deciding to be a hero maker. What's interesting to me is that it's a subtle shift. If you read through the New Testament, when Barnabas and Saul are mentioned, in the early days it's always Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Paul. Later it's always Paul and Barnabas. Interesting, right? I don't want to read too much into that, but it seems to me the spotlight shifted. And it seems to me that Barnabas was not afraid of that. It seems to me that he was just fine with playing whatever role he needed to in the season that he was in. As the, as the spotlight shifted. I wonder if, you know, I think of my peers, other pastors, and I wonder if in our heart of hearts, we see it as our job in life to build a platform for others, or if it's so easy for the way of the world to creep in and to see that it's others' job to build a platform for us. 
See, a true hero maker is not, I mean, by all means, do great things and do great exploits in the name of the Lord. But I think what we see modeled in Jesus is servant leadership. In fact, he puts it this way in John 14, 12, Jesus, who's the ultimate hero maker, of course he's the ultimate hero, but he goes much beyond that. And what he pours into the disciples, he puts it this way in John 14, 12. He says, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. For us to really, in the long run, live out what it means to be a Barnabas, to be an encourager to others, we've got to be secure enough to mean it when we say stand on our shoulders and not be threatened when we get there. To propel others to do like Jesus did, even greater works and to celebrate their successes. Bob Buford, famous Christian speaker and author, passed away about a week or two ago. One of my favorite Bob Buford quotes is he said, my fruit grows on other people's trees. See, that's what a Barnabas understands, is that the greatest harvest oftentimes is not what we do ourselves. Oftentimes the greatest impact of our life when we live as multipliers is that the greatest impact of our lives is is actually through others, in and through the lives of others. I love the word champion, but we tend to forget that it's both a noun and a verb, the word champion. We think of it as the noun, most oftentimes, to be a champion. That's powerful. But I wonder if we have a revelation of what it means, in a sense, to champion others, in the sense of the verb. I wonder, it's all well and good for me to want to be a champion, but have I made it a lifestyle that I would champion the cause of Christ in other people's lives? So when we do that, we not only see souls become Pauls and do incredible things we might never have imagined, but also we realize that encouragement creates room for second chances. You know, it's not only Saul that Barnabas was crucial for, as if that wasn't enough, that he would be the linchpin, the guy that made the difference for the famous Apostle Paul. There was another young man, actually his cousin, that Barnabas believed in, a young man by the name of John Mark. John Mark, the Bible records, actually went with Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey. They went out into the Gentile world, preaching the gospel and establishing churches in cities across the region. But we, we read later in the book of Acts, in Acts 15, that Paul was, was angry because actually John Mark, somewhere along the way, deserts them. He doesn't finish the trip. They set out together, but John Mark, we don't know if he got afraid, we don't know what it was that caused him, but he abandons the cause and, and Paul's not having it. So when they decide, Paul and Barnabas, to go back and do a second trip to visit all the church that they planted, Barnabas says, let's bring John Mark. And Paul says, no. He quit. He turned back. He didn't finish the course. In fact, the Bible says a sharp dispute broke out between Paul and Barnabas. Paul and the one that had been so important to him, the encourager. So sharp was the disagreement that they parted ways. And you know what happens from here? Paul is mostly paired with Silas from this point on. And Barnabas teams up with this young man, John Mark. You would think that would be the end of the story, but I think there's something powerful. The God of second chances, the second act in our lives, is that Mark, it seems, makes a return to strength. You know, uh, as a result of Barnabas' influence in Mark's life, we read about Mark later in some of Paul's letters to the churches. For instance, in Philemon, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, he actually refers to Mark as his fellow worker in Christ. That's a big deal for a guy that before he was so mad at him, he wouldn't even take him on the team on a trip. Now he's a fellow worker. But even more so, 2 Timothy 4 verse 11, 
In one of his letters, he actually finishes by saying, please send to me Mark. And this is the quote. He says, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Seems to me that's a pretty big turnaround that the Apostle Paul has had in his attitude towards this young man, John Mark, often goes by Mark. But maybe this is the most important thing of all that struck me as I studied John Mark's sort of rise and fall and rise again. Thank goodness for the Barnabas influence in his life. Think about this. Would we even have the gospel of Mark today if there wasn't a Barnabas? Would we even have his account of the life and the ministry of Jesus if Barnabas, even when Paul, and for all of his strengths, no dishonor intended, for all of his strengths thought, I don't know, he's a write-off. I'm not going to take another chance on him. Barnabas was willing. I heard somebody say one time that every one of us needs a Paul, a Timothy, and a Barnabas in our lives. A Paul, a Timothy, and a Barnabas. A Paul in the sense that every one of us needs somebody to follow as they follow Jesus. I have that. I hope you have that. People, in a sense, that are leading in your life. You're following them as they're following Jesus. And, but we also, all of us also need a Timothy. Somebody who's following us as we're following Jesus. Amen? None of us, I don't want to ever just be a consumer where I'm happy to receive from others, but I'm not, in a sense, paying it forward. Who are you pouring into? A Paul, a Timothy, but also a Barnabas. Every one of us needs somebody in our life to encourage us and to challenge us. Amen?